Many are calling it the new atheism. What are they saying, and what do they believe? We get this a lot, that it requires faith to be an atheist. Why need faith to lack a belief? Do you guys realize that our brand of atheism is, is merely disbelief, that we... We don't claim to know for sure that no God exists, which is what I think that you would be referring to as the faith position. This is Evidence and Answers with author, speaker, and Christian apologist Pat Zuckerman. I'm your co-host, Kevin Harris, and today you'll hear part three of our recent appearance on an atheist radio podcast show. I would be curious as to what Pat feels is the best piece of evidence for the life of Jesus Christ outside of the Bible. Pat and I were invited on their broadcast to defend the Christian faith. And believe me, our atheist friends asked some very tough questions. This is a very important issue in our culture today, and we hope you'll be equipped to present and defend your faith in Christ more fully after today's program. And let me remind you that there are outstanding resources on everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism on Pat's website, evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Quite an exciting adventure, Pat, when you and I had an opportunity to be on an atheist radio or podcast show streaming on the Internet that's uh, really been in the media quite a lot. Newsweek magazine has picked up on these guys. They were on ABC's Nightline the other night, L.A. Times, and so forth. And so this isn't just some isolated website somewhere. These guys have made a lot of headlines with something called the Blasphemy Challenge. Also, uh, they are supporters of a movie called The God Who Wasn't There that we've talked about on this show. And it's a video documentary that alleged Jesus never existed. The Blasphemy Challenge is a challenge for mostly young people are responding. It's a challenge to videotape yourself blaspheming the Holy Spirit and thus, according to them, committing the unpardonable sin. And so we've had some correspondence with the guys, and they invited us to be on their show to defend our faith in Christ. And so you and I had that opportunity to be on together. What are your thoughts on uh, our interview with them? Well, it was a very difficult interview. It wasn't fair, and they weren't really being honest on a lot of points. Uh, First of all, there was five of them, Kevin, and just two of us. So that already put us at a different kind of, uh, put us at a different disadvantage. Well, mostly because it's difficult to get a word in edgewise when there's right. that many people talking. So, and, and that was one of the difficulties. You would make a point and then they would continue to interrupt. And as soon as you answered their question, they'd interrupt with another question, another question, another question. And though I believe that we show that their arguments to be not strong at all and some to be just outright fallacious, I'm not sure we were ever, ever able, given the opportunity to finish our points and make a clear case. You know, that part was a little difficult for me. I was hoping that they would give us the courtesy of finishing our points and making our points, but of course we didn't have that. Some other things I learned is that there are no convincing arguments against the historical reliability of the Gospels or the uniqueness of Christ and the resurrection, and that Christianity stands up to the challenges raised by the opponents of the cross. Second, that there is good evidence upon which our faith in Christ rests. Third, although the evidence for Christ may be compelling, as You will witness these highlights of this debate. Those who refuse to believe will not honestly weigh the evidence before them. And finally, in the end, I had to realize that it is our job to be prepared and present and defend the truth, but let God and the Holy Spirit deal in the lives of those individuals. And so we just pray and we just hope that the truths that were presented would strengthen the faith of Christians who are listening, but also hopefully would penetrate those who skeptics who are listening, that hopefully they were able to realize that, wait a minute, there is some compelling evidence 
And there is good reason to believe and put your trust in Jesus Christ. Just looking at the website, Rational Response Squad does a real service in that it makes you think about why you believe what you believe. And uh, you guys definitely ask the tough questions. Wow, that's something that we don't normally hear from the Christian yeah, that's quite side. A so thank, thank you. And uh, I feel the same way about you guys in return, actually. Uh, I guess we're kind of a rare breed in that, that, that we want to talk about religion more openly and, and, and more often. Right, we can definitely agree on that. So, okay, you guys are already talking about a rational perspective. And so, well, let me, let me start with the most easy or the most hard question, uh, depending on which perspective you're coming from. We don't feel that there is solid evidence for a God, that we're told to believe in God based on faith, and that that's how we should accept Him. How is that, for us, a good way to determine uh, a belief that we should hold? I mean, and just, just take it one step further. You know, if we utilize that faith, I think that we could utilize it to believe anything, so that's why I don't want to want to utilize that faith. But, I mean, why should I be utilizing faith? Do I even need faith? You guys help me out. Yeah, Pat, go ahead and, and, and talk about that a little bit. But I, I will tell you this, that we're already on a real good start here because what we often hear is our atheist friends say there's there's no evidence for God. And that's that's a pretty big claim. You, you really can't claim that. Obviously, there's, there's evidence for God that theists and atheists consider. But you put it in a way that I think is probably more honest, and that is we don't see any compelling evidence for God. We don't think it's very rational. We think there's a lack of evidence. and But you didn't come out of the chute saying there's no evidence for God. And so I, I think that's cool from the, from the get-go. Pat. Yeah, I think that's a great question. You know, I did not grow up in a Christian home. I grew up in a Buddhist home. And I came to reject the whole worldview of pantheism, that the world is an illusion and that uh, there's this impersonal force that pervades all the universe and all these things. And I then became an atheist. However, you know, just... Uh, from reason, from personal experience, from studying the world around me, from the evidences that we're discovering about our universe, uh, I came to understand that it was reasonable to believe in the existence of a God and that uh, both sides require faith. It requires faith to be an atheist and it requires faith to be a Christian and believe that God exists. The question is, which side has the greater amount of evidence? And I came from, you know, from reason, from experience, from what I studied in the universe around me, that it's, there's more compelling evidence that you can build a case that a theistic God exists. And then when I began to study the life of Jesus Christ and discover that the Gospels were a very accurate historical record written by first century eyewitnesses, that uh, a very accurate historical biography of the life of Christ, that he lived a very unique life, who had a unique ministry, lived and died and rose again, uh, that's when I came to believe in Christianity. And so I put my faith based on the evidence, uh, not from just a blind leap in the dark, but from the evidence that I saw. Okay. Okay, there's a lot yeah, there. There's a lot there. <laughs> oh, man. Um, well, well, first, I want to touch on the one point. We get this a lot, that it requires faith atheist, to be an atheist. Yeah. Um, well, I think that, that that's just going to boil down to him using the strong atheist definition. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I kind of want to know where we're coming from. Why why I need faith to lack of belief? I mean, you know, do, we, do I need... No, we I need, covered that so much. I know. So just like, let me, I just, let me just, let's just make what, it quick. I mean, do, I need, do, do you guys realize that our, our brand of atheism is, is merely disbelief, that we... We don't claim to know for sure that no God exists, which is what I think that you would be referring to as the faith position. Pat, what about that? Does atheism require faith? Well, yes, it does. And I thought there, 
attempt to redefine their atheism really didn't work. In fact, they ended up contradicting themselves. You know, they tried to redefine themselves as soft atheists. In other words, they were saying that we lack belief or that there's not enough evidence to believe in God. Well, if you look at their website, that's not what they're promoting. They are promoting disbelief in God. They are promoting atheism, and they are asking young people all over to blaspheme God, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. In fact, over 700 teens have sent in videos of themselves blaspheming God and the Holy Spirit using some vulgar and sometimes crude language. And so these guys are at, they have a belief. They are asking, and they're asking people to buy into their belief. And so they do have beliefs. It's not that they lack belief, they have beliefs. And of course, when you get to the bottom line of it, you know, it is a rejection of God. So whether you want to disguise it as soft atheism or hard atheist, the bottom line is that an atheist rejects the idea that a God exists. And so their attempt to redefine atheism, to put themselves in a position to say, look, our position doesn't require faith. It's just a lack of belief. And what we want to do is we don't want to state our position because then we'd have to defend it. What we want to do is attack everyone else, but not have to defend our position. But they definitely have a belief, and they're definitely uh, advocating their belief and asking others to join it. And it does take faith to be an atheist, because the evidence out there points to the fact that we do live in a theistic universe, and God has intervened in time and space, specifically in the person of Jesus Christ. These guys would consider themselves part of the new atheism. Now, the media has really coined that term, the new atheism, because there have been some best-selling books uh, at the time of this recording that all deal with atheism. And the new atheism is characterized by uh, being very aggressive, being almost evangelical, evangelistic in your atheism. And a lot of it uh, is because they think that uh, it's taboo to criticize religion. And they want to break that down and say, look, we must criticize religion because of 9-11 and because uh, we're not ever going to get anywhere uh, unless we criticize religion. Of course, they see all religion as false and that they're atheists. You're basically saying that the testimony of a handful of people is enough to establish something supernatural, that's, that's enough to establish, uh, to, to overturn the laws of physics as we understand them. And for me, no amount of mere testimony is ever going to be enough to, to do that. Yeah, not only do you want to look at the testimony, but you also want to look at the historical circumstances in which the uh, message was preached and in which it occurred. I mean, you're talking that the uh, disciples began preaching the resurrection in Jerusalem, you know, in the face of their enemies uh, who had just crucified Christ just uh, weeks before. Suddenly you've got these transformed disciples going into the city of Jerusalem in the face of their enemies who had crucified Christ, in the city where these events took place, and they are preaching that, hey, you know the guy that you killed? Well, he was doing a bunch of miracles, and he was your Messiah, and he rose from the dead, and the grave is empty. And with that, you don't have any uh, first century work refuting an empty tomb uh, or that the body was discovered or things like that. And that, that message would have never lasted had that tomb not been empty and had something miraculous not have taken place. Because the preaching doesn't begin in a foreign land. It begins in Jerusalem in the midst of the eyewitnesses, both pro and looking those looking to stomp out Christianity. You, you brought up the empty tomb there as if 
the the only thing okay the tomb is empty therefore jesus must have you know risen from the dead i can think of at least a half a dozen <laughs> better explanations for why that tomb is empty yeah we can okay. too yeah, yeah so can we and that's not the only evidence that i brought up uh, not only that you've got all the appearances given to multiple disciples you got the transformation of disciples who suddenly are willing to run in and live for the rest of their lives under persecution, preaching that Jesus rose from the dead. You've got a massive Jewish societal transformation, thousands of Jews uh, transforming their religious practices. Suddenly, you've got the preaching that begins in Jerusalem. So I'm not just building it on one thing, the empty tomb. Yeah, there, there are several things. Uh, yeah, there, there are several things. I think a, a good study in this for anybody who's listening is to, to look into four facts that the vast majority of biblical critics agree on and that's that's one way now this isn't argumentum ad populum or the appeal to authority it's just uh, it lends weight to the evidence when you see specialists in this field and i'm talking liberals conservatives moderates christian non-christian those who study the new testament they agree on about four basic facts concerning the fate of jesus christ and when you look at those four facts the resurrection, we think, is the most plausible explanation. God raised Jesus from the dead, you know. And and, and while there could be, well, this whole Those thing, this whole thing is up. Which ones? Well, uh, number one, uh, the the vast majority of biblical critics working in the field believe that Jesus received an honorable burial in uh, the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. And number two, that the tomb was found empty by a group of his women followers. That'd be number two. Number three, that the disciples in various groups and, and individuals at various times and over a period of time experienced appearances of Jesus risen from the dead. And then number four, the disciples, despite every predisposition to the contrary, came to suddenly and sincerely believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. Now, those four facts taken together cry out for an answer and cry out for an explanation and the resurrection makes the, the most sense unless you're a naturalist and you rule out the supernatural a priori you rule out god a priori uh, can i ask you something really quick sure. uh, do you know who elvis presley is or was yes well he could still be alive there are people who say he that's, is. that's what i'm getting to <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that there's any religio-historical context around Elvis that would, uh, uh, in, in, in any way... Is, is, is he dead or alive? Uh, well, he's, he's dead, and I think that... But there are people that claim he's alive. Sure. Sure, and that claim is not gaining any... any well, yeah, people, people can believe what is not true. They asked us about the resurrection of Jesus and uh, some of the historicity of the resurrection. We talked about four facts that the majority of New Testament scholars agree on. Now, their response to this, Pat, was, yeah, but what about Elvis Presley? Right. They tried to make that parallel, and maybe on the surface that might sound like a good parallel, but once you look into... Both of the facts in both cases, the analogy quickly breaks down. Yeah, because Elvis, a lot of people claim that he's not actually dead, you know, and right. so on. There was a rumor or a, uh, that uh, Elvis wasn't actually dead, and so they, they brought that issue up. Right, you know, and the facts, uh, when you look at the facts, the analogy quickly breaks down. And, you know, we pointed out the facts. First of all, the gravesite of Elvis is known, and his body is still there. The gravesite of Christ was known, and, his, and that grave was empty. 
Also, you still got to account for the transformation of the disciples who would go into Jerusalem and preach the resurrection of Christ, knowing that their message would bring their death or a life of persecution, not only for themselves, but their families and all who would follow in their footsteps. You don't have that with Elvis Presley. You pointed out very clearly, Kevin, that people uh, don't die uh, for the belief of a resurrected Elvis. You know, so all the you just look at the facts and the analogy quickly breaks down. They had another explanation that they threw at us, and that is that the disciples or the early followers of Jesus could have been hallucinating. And uh, we said, look, uh, that would involve not only groups of people, but also individuals. People don't, don't tend to hallucinate in groups, especially over a period of time. Nobody gets together in a big crowd and says, my, wasn't that a great dream we all had last night? You know, people don't tend to hallucinate in groups. And they said, well, actually, they do, and they quoted some kind of a study where peer pressure sometimes makes people give wrong answers. It, it, it's actually quite common. There's been scientific studies done on it. If one person claims to see something and professes it loudly enough and often enough and with enough vigor, other people around them will adopt that same sort of mentality in order not to be single out. Uh, like one famous study, for example, has had uh, groups of people come into a room uh, and, and look at the lengths of lines. If one person looks at, you know, if they ask them, well, which, which line is longer, they will always have like one person consistently say the wrong answer. And eventually other people start to question, well, am I insane for not seeing the same thing this person does? And they will adopt their viewpoint as more and more trials are, are passed on. So and in fact, yeah, right. and it, and in it, fact, is, it is a, a natural phenomenon that uh, the, these sort of uh, mass hallucinations, if you will, uh, can indeed occur. Right. Yeah, you know, uh, that's basically from the 19th century. That's when hallucination theory really uh, came up. And, and the critics themselves have dismissed it mainly. And I'll just give you a couple of reputations on it. First of all, it doesn't seem to have uh, hallucinations don't have a lot of transformative power. You don't you certainly wouldn't die for one. Uh, they don't tend to change your life. Well, because you tend to reflect on them and say, you know what? I think I was out of my head or that doesn't really seem real to me. And I'm not going to risk my neck for it. Plus, the appearances of Christ occur to various people, various 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 groups, and at various times. You know, you name one of the five hundred for me. Uh, uh, Paul doesn't list any of the five hundred, exactly. but, but he lists exactly. James. He lists there's, Peter. There's no names. Uh, he lists himself names again. And and you know what? And he does more than Herodotus does. Herodotus only gives two uh, uh, witnesses to anything that he uh, from the same time period, anything he purports. He and so Paul actually goes further. Right. They pointed to an example of two lines, and one line is obviously longer than the other. But if someone can be very persuasive and enough pressure is put on people, they'll, they'll agree with that person and say, well, you know, the, the shorter line is actually longer, and they will be persuaded into that. And that's kind of the argument that he was giving. And I, I'm not sure uh, people caught on to your explanation, Kevin. And that is this, if I see two lines and one looks longer than another, but everyone's telling me, hey, go for the shorter line, go for the shorter line. Okay, I may give in to that because of peer pressure. But if someone comes in the room and puts a gun to my head and said, I'm going to kill you, um, you know, upon your belief on one of these lines being longer than the other, not only you, but everyone else in here, 
uh, who believes this way and your family and anyone else. Now, what would you do? You know what I would do? I would really reflect on that and I would go look at the evidence. I mean, I would measure those lines as carefully as I could and examine all the evidence. And the point is, of course, that uh, the disciples were willing to die for what they believed. And, and liars make poor martyrs. People don't die for what they know to be false. And not only were they uh, threatened with death, and not only were they killed, but they were also ostracized for their belief that Jesus rose again from the dead. Yeah, and when your life is on the line, you know, you are going to go back and examine the facts. You are not just going to say, well, I, I trust this hallucination, or I trust in the power of suggestion here. The vast majority of people are going to re-examine the facts very carefully, and that's what the apostles did. I noticed that uh, our atheist friends in uh, trying to rebut us and refute us quoted the New Testament when it was convenient for them and their point, and then denied it when it wasn't convenient for them. In other words, they were trying to deny the historical reliability of the New Testament, but they kept going to the New Testament uh, and giving historical facts from the, New, from the New Testament. In other words, they would say, well, you know, Peter and Paul didn't get along very well at one point. How do they know that? Well, they're quoting the New Testament. And so they're saying the historical fact that Peter and Paul had kind of a falling out, they get that from the historical reliability of the New Testament. Right. That was a good point, Kevin. You know, Kevin, one of the parts of the debate where I was a little lost in is when they were talking about the fact that Paul did not know of a historical Christ. He did not receive these from the apostles. He got it from a vision. Now, explain to us exactly what was going on there in that debate. You made some very good points in that Paul didn't just receive it from a vision. He did indeed interact with the apostles and uh, receive much of his information from them. What was their argument and where were they going with this? What they were trying to do was say that everything that Paul got about Jesus was just from ecstatic visions and uh, therefore they couldn't be relied on. Actually, Paul did receive direct revelation from Jesus, but he also was familiar with the other apostles. And in Galatians, Galatians 1.18, he uses a word historio, Greek word historio, which means he literally interviewed to gain knowledge. He spent 15 days with Peter and some of the apostles to uh, gain some information about Jesus. They put their stamp of approval on Paul that, in fact, he was speaking the truth of the gospel. So uh, Paul was familiar with the followers of Jesus, and he was familiar with the contemporaries and the eyewitnesses of Jesus. Yes, you know, and Kevin, in Acts chapter 9, after Saul's conversion, he immediately was in Jerusalem preaching, and the Jews conspired to kill him. And he, it says here that the apostles and many of the disciples were afraid of Paul because he was originally persecuting them. But in verse 27 of chapter 9, it says, But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them, the apostles, and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. And so here, immediately after Saul's conversion or Paul's conversion, he's interacting with the disciples here. Kevin, you know, this was a pretty, uh, a pretty hostile audience, and I thought, you know, you handled it very well. You know, you were very gracious with them, much more patience than many of us would be. And we don't hate them or anything, you know. We enjoy dialoguing with those who may disagree with us. But when we come across maybe some kind of hostile encounter, what are some principles that you remember and apply and that we can apply when we encounter those who would disagree with us and often be 
quite hostile in their approach. Be firm, but be polite, and don't lose your temper. I think that that is very important because these discussions can be very emotional. First Peter 3.15 tells us not only to give an answer for anyone who asks us about the hope that we have in Jesus, but to do so with gentleness and reverence. Because when they get away from you later and they're, not, they're no longer in the heat of the debate, that's the time that I think the Holy Spirit can work on them and perhaps use what you said earlier. And so we started out this interview with them being complimentary and uh, saying that we're all here to look for truth and so on. But there were also times, I think, that uh, we were firm with them, firm but fair and polite. Yeah. And you know, Kevin, some people out there listening may say, why why do you guys debate these atheists? Why do you do this? You're just wasting time. What would you say to them? I would say, first of all, even if they never come to faith in Christ because of our persuasive arguments or, or anything like that, this was a radio show and an internet podcast, and there are seekers who will listen. And there are people who might be on the fence as to Jesus. And there may be some people who have some intellectual roadblocks to faith in Christ. And we were able to address many of those roadblocks and and knock them down. And there is good reason to believe and put your trust in Jesus Christ. Well, I hope you've heard the importance of today's program. This atheist group has received extensive media coverage, and Pat Zuckerin is on the front lines engaging those who work to convince people that the claims of Christ are false. Keep Pat speaking out, countering the claims of atheism by supporting Evidence and Answers with your prayers and financial gifts. Your prayer and giving helps to keep Pat on the air. Just go to evidenceandanswers.org and click on Make a Donation and browse the multitude of professional resources available there. That's evidenceandanswers.org, evidenceandanswers.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuccaro.